Part One, Chapter Three B of the Adventures of Jimmy Dale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. The Adventures of Jimmy Dale by Frank L. Packard. Reading by Mary Rohde. Part One: The Man in the Case. Chapter Three B: The Mother Load. Continued. Quick now in every action, he swung aside the portiere that curtained off the squat, barrel-shaped safe in the little alcove, opened the safe, took out that curious leather girdle with its kit of burglar's tools, added to it a flashlight and an automatic revolver, closed the safe, and passed into his dressing-room. Here he proceeded to divest himself rapidly of his evening clothes, selecting in their stead a suit of dark tweed, he heard Jason come up the stairs, pass along the hall, and mount the second flight to his own quarters. And presently came the sound of an automobile without. The dressing-room fronted on the drive. Jimmy Dale looked out. Benson was just getting out of the touring car. Slipping the leather girdle then around his waist, Jimmy Dale put on his vest, then his coat, and walked briskly downstairs. Jason had laid out a gray ulster on the hall stand. Jimmy Dale put it on, selected a leather cap with motor-goggle attachment that pulled down almost to the tip of his nose, tucked a slouch hat into the pocket of the ulster, and, leaving the house, climbed into his car. He glanced at his watch as he started. It was a quarter of eleven. Jimmy Dale's lips pursed a little. I guess it'll make a night of it, and a tight squeeze at that to get back under cover before daylight, he muttered. I'll have to do some tall speeding. But at first, across the city and through Brooklyn, for all his impatience, it was necessarily slow. After that, Jimmy Dale took chances, and once on the country roads of Long Island, the big, powerful car tore through the night like a greyhound whose leash is slipped. A half hour passed, Jimmy Dale's eyes shifting occasionally from the gray thread of road ahead of him, under the glare of the dancing lamps, to the road map spread out at his feet, upon which from time to time he focused his pocket flashlight. And then, finally, he slowed the car to a snail's pace. He should be very near his destination, that very ultra-exclusive subdivision of Charlton Park Manor. On either side of the road now was quite a thickly set stretch of wooded land, rising slightly on the right, and this Jimmy Dale scrutinized sharply. In fact, he stopped for an instant as he came opposite to a wagon track. It seemed to be little more than that, that led in through the trees. "'If it's not too far from the seat of war,' commented Jimmy Dale to himself as he went on again, "'it will do admirably.' And then, a hundred yards farther on, Jimmy Dale nodded his head in satisfaction. He was passing the rather ornate stone pillars that marked the entrance to Charlton Park Manor, and on which the initial promoters of the subdivision, the real estate people, had evidently deemed it good advertising policy to expend a small fortune. Another hundred yards farther on, Jimmy Dale turned his car around, and returned past the gates to the wagon track again. The road was deserted. Not a car nor a vehicle of any description was in sight. Jimmy Dale made sure of that. And in another instant Jimmy Dale's own car, every light extinguished, had vanished. He had backed it up the wagon track. 
just far enough in for the trees to screen it thoroughly from the main road. Nor did Jimmy Dale himself appear again on the main road, until just as he emerged close to the gates of Charlton Park Manor, from a short cut through the woods. Also, he was without his ulster now, and the slouch hat had replaced the motor cap. Jimmy Dale, in the moonlight, took stock of his surroundings as he passed in at a business-like walk through the gates. It was a large park, if that name could properly be applied to it at all, and the houses, he caught sight of one set back from the driveway on the right, were quite far apart, each in its own rather spacious grounds among the trees. The second house on the right, her letter had said. Jimmy Dale had already passed the first one. The next would be Markle's then, and it loomed ahead of him now, black and shadowy and unlighted. Jimmy Dale shot a glance around him. There was stillness, quiet everywhere, no sign of life, no sound. Jimmy Dale's face became tense, his lips tight, and he stepped suddenly from the sidewalk in among the trees. They were not thick here, of course, the trees, and the turf beneath his feet was well kept, and therefore soundless. He moved quickly now, but cautiously, from tree to tree, for the moonlight, flooding the lawn and house, threw all objects into bold relief. A minute, two, three went by, and a shadow flitted here and there across the light green sward, like the moving of the trees swaying in the breeze. And then Jimmy Dale was standing close up against one side of the house, hidden by the protecting black shadows of the walls. But here, for a moment, Jimmy Dale seemed little occupied with the house itself. He was staring down past its length to where the woods made a heavy, dark background at the rear. Then he turned his head to face directly to the main road, then back again slowly, as though measuring an angle. Jimmy Dale had no intention of making his escape by the roundabout way in which he had been forced to come in order to make certain of locating the right house, the second one from the gates, and he was getting the bearings of his car and the wagon track now. I guess that'll be about right, Jimmy Dale muttered finally, and now for... He slipped along the side of the house and halted, where, almost on a level with the ground, the French windows of the dining room opened on the lawn. Jimmy Dale tried them gently. They were locked. An indulgent smile crept to Jimmy Dale's lips, and his hand crept in under his vest. It came out again, not empty, and Jimmy Dale leaned close against the window. There was a faint, almost inaudible, scratching sound, then a slight, brittle crack, and Jimmy Dale laid a neat little four-inch square of glass on the ground at his feet. Through the aperture he reached in his hand, turned the key that was in the lock, turned the bolt-rod handle, pushed the door silently open, wide open, left them open, and stepped into the room. He could see quite well within, thanks to the moonlight, Jimmy Dale produced a black silk mask from one of the little leather pockets, adjusted it carefully over his face, and crossed the room to the hall door. He opened this, wide open, left it open, and entered the hall. Here it was dark, a pitch blackness. He stood for a moment, listening. Utter silence. And then, alert, strained, tense in an instant, 
Jimmy Dale crouched against the wall, and then he smiled a little grimly. It was only someone coughing upstairs. Markle, in his sleep, perhaps, or perhaps in wakefulness. I'm a fool, confided Jimmy Dale to himself, as he recognized the cough that he had heard at the club. And yet, I don't know, one's nerves get sort of taut, pretty stiff business. If I'm ever caught, the penitentiary sentence I get will be the smallest part of what's to pay. A round button of light played along the wall from the flashlight in his hand, just for an instant, and all was blackness again. But in that instant Jimmy Dale was across the hall, and his fingers were tracing the telephone connection from the instrument to where the wires disappeared in the baseboard of the floor. Another instant, and he had severed the wires with a pair of nippers. Again the quick firefly gleam of light to locate the staircase and the library door opposite to it, and, moving without the slightest noise, Jimmy Dale's hand was on the door itself. Again he paused to listen. All was silence now. The door swung under his hand, and, left open behind him, he was in the room. The flashlight winked once, suspiciously. Then he snapped its little switch, keeping the current on, and the ray dodged impudently here and there all over the apartment. The safe was set in a sort of clothes closet behind the desk, she had said. Yes, there it was, the door at least. Jimmy Dale moved toward it, and paused as his light swept the top of the intervening desk. A mass of papers, books, and correspondence littered it untidily. The yellow sheet of a telegram caught Jimmy Dale's eye. He picked it up and glanced at it. It read, Vain uncovered today, undoubtedly mother load, enormously rich, put the screws on at once, thorough. Under the mask, Jimmy Dale's lips twitched. I think, Markle, you miserable hound, said he softly, that God will forgive me for depriving you of a share of the profits. Two hundred and ten thousand, I think it was, you said the sparklers cost. A curious little sound came from Jimmy Dale's lips, like a chuckle. Jimmy Dale tossed the telegram back on the desk, moved on behind the desk, opened the door of the closet that had been metamorphosed into a vault, and the white light traveled slowly, searchingly, critically, over the shining black enameled steel, the nickeled knobs and dials of a safe that confronted him. Jimmy Dale nodded at it, familiarly, grimly. "'It's a number 14321, all right,' he murmured, "'and one of the best we ever made. "'Pretty tough, but I've done it before. "'Say, half an hour of gentle persuasion. "'It would be too bad to crack it with soup. "'Besides, that's crude. "'Carruthers would never forgive the Gray Seal for that.' "'The light went out. "'Blackness fell.' Jimmy Dale's slim, sensitive fingers closed on the dial's knob. His head touched the steel front of the safe as he pressed his ear against it for the tumbler's fall. And then silence. It seemed to grow heavier, that silence, with each second, to palpitate through the quiet house, to grow pregnant, premonitory of dread, of fear. It seemed to throb in long undulations, and the stillness grew loud. A moonbeam filtered in between the edge of the drawn shade and the edge of the window. 
It struggled across the floor in a wavering path, straight over the desk, and died away, shadowy and formless, against the blackness of the opened recessed door, against the blackness of the great steel safe, the blackness of a huddled form crouched against it. Only now and then, in a strange, projected, wraith-like effect, the moon-ray glinted timidly on the tip of a nickel dial, and ghost-like disclosed a human hand. Upstairs, Markle coughed again, then from the safe a whisper, heavy breathed as from great exertion. Missed it! The dial whirled with faint musical little metallic clicks, then began to move slowly again, very, very slowly. The moonbeam, as though petulant at its own abortive attempt to satisfy its curiosity, retreated back across the floor and faded away. Blackness. Time passed. Then from the safe again, but now in a low gasp, a pant of relief. Ah! The ear might barely catch the sound. It was as of metal sliding in well-oiled grooves, of metal meeting metal in a padded thud. The massive door swung outward. Jimmy Dale stood up, easing his cramped muscles, and flirted the sweat beads from his forehead. After a moment he knelt again. There was still the inner door, but that was a minor matter to Jimmy Dale compared with what had gone before. Stillness once more. A long period of it. And then again that cough from above a prolonged paroxysm of it this time, that went fracketing through the house. Jimmy Dale, in the act of swinging back the inner door of the safe, paused to listen, and little furrows under his mask gathered on his forehead. The coughing stopped. Jimmy Dale waited a moment, still listening. Then his flashlight bored into the interior of the safe. The cash box, probably quoted Jimmy Dale, beneath his breath, and picked it up from where it lay in the bottom compartment of the safe. The lock snipped under the insistent probe of a delicate little blue-steeled instrument, and Jimmy Dale lifted the cover. There was a package of papers and documents on top, held together with elastic bands. Jimmy Dale spent a moment or two examining these, then his fingers dived down underneath, and the next minute, under the flashlight, the Morocco leather case open, the diamond necklace was sparkling and flashing on its white satin bed. A tempting little thing, isn't it? said Jimmy Dale gently. It was really thoughtful of you, Markle, to buy that this afternoon. Jimmy Dale replaced the necklace in the cash box, set the cash box on the floor, closed the inner door of the safe, and swung the outer door a little inward, but left it flauntingly ajar. Then, from a pocket of the leather girdle beneath his vest, he produced his small, thin, flat metal case. From this, from between sheets of oil paper, with the aid of a pair of tweezers, he lifted out a gray, diamond-shaped seal. Jimmy Dale was apparently fastidious. He held the seal with the tweezers as he moistened the adhesive side with his tongue, laid the seal on his handkerchief, and pressed the handkerchief firmly against the safe, as usual, Jimmy Dale's insignia bore no fingerprints as it lay neatly capping the knob of the dial. He reached down, picked up the cash box, and then, for the second time that night, held suddenly tense, alert, listening, his every muscle taut. A door opened upstairs. 
There came a murmur of voices, then a momentary lull. Jimmie Dale listened. Like a statue he stood there in the black, absolutely motionless, his head a little forward and to one side. Nothing, not a sound. Then a very low, curious, swishing noise and a faint creak. Somebody was coming down the stairs. Jimmie Dale moved stealthily from the recess and noiselessly to the desk. Very faintly, but distinctly now, came a pad of either slippered or bare feet on the stairway carpet. Like a cat, soundless in his movements, Jimmie Dale crept toward the door of the room. Down the stairs came that pad of feet. Occasionally came that swishing sound. Nearer the door crept Jimmie Dale, and his lips were thinned now, his jaws clamped. How near were they together, he and this night prowler? At times he could not hear the other at all, and besides, the heavy carpet made the judgment of distance an impossibility. If he could gain the hall, and in the darkness elude the other, the way of escape through the dining room was open. And then, within a few feet of the door, Jimmie Dale halted abruptly, as a woman's voice rose querulously from the hallway above. "'You are making a perfect fool of yourself, Theodore Markle. Come back here to bed.' Jimmie Dale's face hardened like stone. The answer came almost from the very threshold in front of him. "'I can't sleep, I tell you.' It was Markle's voice in a disgruntled snarl. "'I was a fool to bring the confounded thing home. I'm going to take the library couch for the rest of the night.' It happened quick, then, quick as the winking of an eye. Two sharp, almost simultaneous clicks of the electric light buttons pressed by Markle and the hall and library were a flood of light. And Jimmie Dale leaped forward to where, in dressing gown and pajamas, blankets and bedding over one arm, a revolver dangling in the other hand, Markle stood full before the door in the hallway without. There was a wild yell of terror and surprise from Markle, then a deafening roar and a spit of flame from his revolver, a bitter, smothered exclamation from Jimmie Dale, as the cash-box crashed to the floor from his left hand, and he was upon the other like a tiger. With the impact, both men went to the floor, grappled and rolled over and over. Half mad with fear, shock, and surprise, Markle fought like a maniac, and his voice in gasping shouts rang through the house. A minute, too, passed, and the men rolled about the hall floor. Markle, over middle age and unhealthily fat, against Jimmie Dale's six feet of muscle. Only Jimmie Dale's left hand, dripping a red stream now, was almost useless. From above came wild confusion, women's voices and little shrieks, men's voices shouting in excitement, doors opening, running feet, and then Jimmie Dale had snatched a revolver from the floor where Markle had dropped it in the scuffle and was pressing it against Markle's forehead and Markle, terror-stricken, had collapsed in a flabby, pliant heap. Jimmy Dale, still covering Markle with the weapon, stood up. The frightened faces of women protruded from the banisters above. The two manservants, at best none too enthusiastically on the way down, stopped as though stunned as Jimmy Dale swung the revolver upon them. Then Jimmy Dale spoke to Markle, pointing the weapon at Markle again. "'I don't like you, Markle,' he said with cold impudence. "'The only decent thing you'll ever do will be to die. 
If those men of yours on the stairs move another step, it will be your death warrant. Do you understand? I would suggest that you request them to stay where they are. Cold sweat was on Markle's face as he stared into the muzzle of the revolver, and his teeth chattered. Go back, he screamed hysterically at the servants. Go back. Sit down. Don't move. Do what he tells you. Thank you, said Jimmy Dale grimly. Now, get up yourself. Markle got up. Jimmy Dale backed to the library door, picked up the cash box, tucked it under his left armpit, and faced those on the stairs. Mr. Markle and I are going out for a little walk, he announced coolly. If one of you make a move or raise an alarm before your master comes back, I shall be obliged in self-defense to shoot Mr. Markle. Mr. Markle quite understands that, I am sure. Do you not, Mr. Markle? Helen, screamed Markle to his wife, don't let him move. For God's sake, do as he says. Jimmy Dale's lips, just showing beneath the edge of his mask, broadened in a pleasant little smile. Will you lead the way, Mr. Markle? he requested with an ironic deference. Through the dining room, please. Yes, that's right. Markle walked weakly into the dining room, and Jimmy Dale followed. A prod in the back from the revolver muzzle, and Markle stepped through the French windows and out on the lawn. Jimmy Dale faced the other toward the woods at the rear of the house. Go on, Jimmy Dale's voice was curt now, uncompromising. And step lively. End of Part 1, Chapter 3B